The total amount paid in inheritance tax has risen significantly in the last decade. In the last tax year, IHT receipts came to £5.4 billion, up from less than £3 billion 10 years earlier. And while rising property prices are drawing more families into the IHT net, there are ways for you to mitigate this. Welcome to the Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Dave Baxter, and joining me today is Huggy Clark, Director at Foresight Group. Huggy, thanks very much for coming on. Thanks for having me. So let's get into this. Um, In your experience, what is driving this kind of big rise we've seen, this steady rise in IH2 receipts? And is there anything about this trend that, you know, perhaps strikes you as unusual or surprising? Yeah, there are a few significant uh, contributors. The, The first, as you might expect, has been the growing value of assets. Uh, since the financial crisis, uh, it's it's been harder not to make an interesting return on your <laughs> assets than than perhaps to make it. One might say, but in particular, the growth in value of residential property has has provided a real thrust to the net value of estates and therefore inheritance tax. What what's perhaps somewhat more hidden and and to my mind really significant though is the growth in the number of estates that are paying the tax. So if this issue was primarily driven by the growth in asset values, you might expect the average payment of inheritance tax to have increased. But actually in the last decade or so, it's only really risen by about 10% the average inheritance tax paid. What we have seen is a doubling of the estates that are paying the tax. That's moved it from what many people would consider a tax on the rich, the wealthy, actually to a tax on the mass affluent and more and more estates. That's really what's fueling the the growth in inheritance tax receipts. So, I mean, could that number be lower, I guess, is the, uh, is the question? It, it could certainly be lower, uh, either through financial planning or through um, better education around just how inheritance tax works. There have been a few, a few changes that we might have reasonably ex- have expected to reduce inheritance tax and reduce the number of estates that are paying it. Not least, first of all, the introduction of the resident nil rate band in uh, 2017. That heralded the delivery of a manifesto promised by the Conservative Party to deliver a nil rate band of up to £1 million. And for most people, most estates, one might expect that that would have taken them out of the inheritance tax bracket. It's far and away the largest increase in personal allowances of any sort we've seen in this country for decades. However, despite that introduction, we have continued to see inheritance tax receipts rise year on year. And it's interesting to explore why that might be. The first is just the complexity of the residents' nil rate band and the fact that many people who feel they might benefit or might expect to benefit actually won't. It it comes with a handful of criteria to Mm. qualify that mean it's somewhat less generous than it might at first appear. For example, you must be married to benefit from up to the million pounds. You must have children, you must be leaving your assets to children, and your assets must be a main residence or home. You factor on top of that that any estates valued at over two million pounds will start to lose the relief, and you can start to see, first of all, the complexity, and secondly, why many people might not 
benefit. Um, to give just a couple of quick examples of that, my sister has children, has a main home, but she couldn't benefit from the full million pounds residence nil rate band plus residence nil rate mm. band because she's not married, and therefore she couldn't benefit from her spouse's residence nil rate band. Uh, I myself couldn't benefit from the residence nil rate band at all because I don't have any children, and so despite the appealing headline. There are many, many people who ultimately couldn't benefit from the residence nil rate band. I think the other issue with it is it is being introduced over time. It's being tapered in. And so as we stand today, even if you met all of the relevant criteria, you still wouldn't have a million pounds worth of nil rate band because it's being tapered in over several years. Uh, and actually the million pounds won't be available until 2020, 2021. So Part of the issue is just the the complexity of allowances such as these. So is it is it still worth bothering? I mean, if, if plenty of people aren't actually going to qualify or, you know, like you say, it's perhaps not as generous as maybe people might assume. It's, it's certainly worth bothering in the, in the same way that, that you would say the, the ISA allowance is relatively modest, but it's still mm. worth using your ISA allowance. There are complexities around the residence no rate ban, but if you can access it, if you can benefit from it, then it, it's, it's certainly uh, something that should be taken advantage of. One of the positives of it is when it comes to a personal claim, it's automatically given. It's not something that, that anyone would need to do to take benefit of. When your estate is calculated, it's an allowance that would be automatically appointed to you. However, if you were trying to claim or if you were able to claim your spouse's residence no rate band, that is something you would have to do proactively. And that is an area where people might miss out on available allowances just by not realising that that was something they, they had to claim. And I, I guess it's probably quite hard to quantify, but do you get the impression that there are many people who might qualify but simply aren't aware of it or aren't sort of taking the, the necessary steps. I'd be almost certain that there are people who, A, aren't aware or fully understand how it works. Uh, I think even for those <laughs> in the industry, it can be difficult to keep track of. As I say, fortunately, from the personal perspective, the personal residence nil rate band, that will be applied in the same way that a personal income tax allowance would be applied. You get it without having to do anything proactively. What I do suspect, and it'd be difficult to speculate about the numbers, but I do suspect there are those who don't appreciate what they need to do to claim the spouse's residence nil rate band uh, where it's available and therefore would find themselves paying more inheritance tax than they really needed to. Mm, interesting. And I guess there are any other kind of factors that might be just putting people off kind of considering this issue? Absolutely, yeah. That There are a range of issues and, and I think it's a classic case of unintended consequences, some of it. So uh, one of the issues that we're starting to notice is the impact that pension freedoms is having on inheritance tax and people's willingness to plan. And specifically here, what I mean is that the change in 2015 around pension freedoms, meaning that it was no longer compulsory to buy an annuity at age 75, what that's meant is more and more individuals are looking at their pensions as IHT planning vehicles as opposed to retirement income vehicles. And what that does is it places an increased emphasis on non-pension assets so people still need income, people still need capital in retirement. And where they start to think, well, what I might do is 
treat my pension as a piece of uh, legacy planning, IHT planning. It places pressure on other assets and leads to greater questions over just what value of assets will be sufficient to see one through retirement. That links to another set of uh, issues. There was um, an interesting study several years ago that discovered only one in three individuals who receive a recommendation on what to do about their IHT situation, on how they can mitigate their IHT bill. Only one in three do anything about that. Now, when you consider that there'll be a substantial number of people who'd never received that advice in the same in the first place, it tells us that actually there are a fraction of people who could and should consider IHT planning mm. who are actually A, receiving that advice and B, doing anything with it. The study explored what was putting people off and there's kind of good news and bad news in here. The good news is only 4% of people weren't doing planning because they didn't want their beneficiaries to inherit assets. <laughs> <laughs> so there's obviously some uh, some familial challenges right. in there that's, that's putting certain people off IHT planning, but, but fortunately only a small proportion. Interestingly, there was a substantial proportion of people who just didn't understand their IHT position, either didn't understand that they uh, were due to pay the tax or didn't understand what they could do to mitigate it, perhaps thought that it was someone else who would have to pay it, etc. Around a third were just putting the issue off, around 30%. Mm. And anecdotally, we hear feedback that one of the greatest prompts to doing IHT planning is having something happen to yourself or someone close to you. So unfortunately, the death of a spouse or a close friend or indeed a personal health scare is commonly the thing that leads to breaking that inertia and people starting to think about IHT planning. The challenge there is because much of the planning will rely on good health or uh, survival of several years, then waiting until there is a health scare or for later life can mean that the solutions available to you are not going to be effective because, candidly, you're, you're not, not going to survive mm, um, so, long enough. Yeah. But perhaps unsurprisingly, the biggest single issue, and it does relate back to what we were talking about around pensions, is people's concerns over loss of access and control of their assets. And it's quite easy to understand when we just step back and think about it for a moment, but no one is quite sure how long they're going to survive. No one's quite sure what their costs are going to be. Uh, you might have 20, 30, 40 years ahead of you. Just how much capital, just how much income will you need? Just what level of income can your assets generate? Given that most forms of IHT planning demand some sort of loss of access or, or control, you have a very difficult dynamic there between I want to do planning, but how much money do I need? If I do planning, do I deprive myself of assets that I would ultimately depend on in later life? Yeah. Is there, is there a way to strike that balance? I mean, I guess everyone's individual. It's all you know different situations, but is there kind of a rough approach that might make that easier? Uh, that there, there would be no kind of catch-all approach that you could say, or, or a rule of thumb, if you like. It is absolutely determined by personal circumstances. I suppose the one thing I, I would point to is that generally people hold on to far more assets than they would actually need, that those who are in the IHT planning bracket. Generally what we see is as years go by, people spend less 
So early in retirement, when people are more active, perhaps more willing to travel, etc., then income demands tend to be higher. But as as the years go by, what we generally see is a fall off in the requirement for income and capital over time. And so Again, it's it's very difficult and I wouldn't want to profess to give any advice or, mm. or to specific guidance around this. But uh, perhaps a thing to look at would be whether or not your wealth is growing year on year or whether or not your wealth is reducing year on year in retirement. Certainly for people whose wealth is growing, uh, by which I, I guess we're talking about either you're not spending all of your income or the growth in of your capital assets is outstripping uh, what you're spending, then they are the sort of people who look very good candidates to do some sort of um, IHT planning because effectively you have a a net uh, surplus with which you could do some planning no matter how modest. Are there any, um, I mean, you mentioned, for example, this interesting issue with the freedoms where people are looking at their kind of pension as a way of uh, leaving a legacy and that perhaps creates pressure elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Are there any other sort of common mistakes that you see that people should be aware of? Yeah, there there are a handful of missteps that that people make, I think. Um, So one of the issues is an attempt to tackle the conflict between wanting to do some planning but not wanting to lose access and control. And what that will sometimes lead to, for example, is uh, what's known as gifts with reservation. Uh, And so that a classic example of that would be where someone might gift their house to sons, daughters, uh, grandchildren, but continue to live in that house rent free. And it feels like it might be a a perfect uh, solution. So you get to continue to enjoy your home, but actually you've you've taken that asset out of your estate because you've given it away. Unfortunately, in the eyes of the revenue, any time that you give something away but maintain enjoyment of it and benefit over it, the gift with reservation rules mean that it will still be considered part of your estate for IHT purposes, and therefore you will still pay full tax on those assets. Along similar sorts of lines, I think there's just a misunderstanding around some of the options that are available to do IHT planning. So we spoke a moment ago about income surpluses. One of the most underutilised options for IHT planning is what's called gifts from normal expenditure. And that essentially means if you can demonstrate that gifts you're making are habitual and aren't impacting your quality of life, they're coming out of normal expenditure, then there will never be any IHT on those gifts. It doesn't matter if you died the the day after you'd given them or 10 years after you'd given them. So where there are those income surpluses, that can be a really good way of doing some immediate IHT uh, planning that that no matter what was to happen down the line, there'd never be any IHT to pay on those gifts. I think ultimately the biggest mistake though that people make is just leaving it too late. The classic solution is some sort of gifting and by gifting I mean both gifting directly to a beneficiary or indeed uh, gifting assets into a trust that do allow maintenance of some control, um, often a high degree of control over those assets. The problem that most people have is that they leave that too late to do. So for a for a gift or a trust to be effective, the donor needs to survive seven years from the date of that gift or those assets will fall back inside the estate for IHT purposes. The average age we see uh, when it comes to IHT planning 
is late 70s to early 80s. And while many people of that demographic will indeed survive seven years, uh, I've met one or two who I think might outlast me, <laughs> um, there, there are a, a reasonable proportion who don't. And so there you have, in some respects, the worst of both worlds, which is you have deprived yourself of the assets, you've given them away, but actually you've enjoyed no IHT benefit. So if, if there was a single mistake that people make, I would argue that it's, it's leaving their planning too late. Is there a, again, you know, this is relying slightly on generalizations, but is there a kind of rough point in your life or a rough age when you should start thinking of it? For example, maybe when you retire, sort of incorporate it into that broader piece of work or? Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think that's a, a sensible time to start to reflect on just what level of income, what level of capital would I need in retirement? what feels like it would be a sensible surplus. And and it's not necessary to make grand gestures or to do kind of large-scale planning, giving away tens or even hundreds of thousands of, of pounds worth of assets at a time. Actually doing those gifts out of normal expenditure Uh, making smaller gifts on a habitual basis can be a good way just to stay on top of uh, your your IHT planning and and transferring assets. I I guess it is driven by health. One of the things we see, unfortunately, is we know that people can pass at any time. And so you do have to try and strike that balance. But I think around retirement, certainly moving into um, the early 70s, seems like a good time to plan where all of the available IHT options would remain open to you. And on the broader IHT front, are there any developments recent or potentially upcoming that you know perhaps people should uh, be aware of? Yeah, certainly. So the place the space around tax planning is always interesting whether it's income tax cgt or or inheritance tax there's always lots of change um so it's always worth just trying to to stay on top of what's going on or or speaking to a a professional intermediary who can keep you abreast of it around inheritance tax specifically We've seen the Office for Tax Simplification release a report uh, a few months ago. Um, This is something they've been working on uh, since last year. And what that suggested are a handful of changes around how inheritance tax operates and how it's administered. Now, to some degree, the clue is in the title. They are the Office for Tax Simplification. And so their main thrust is around how can we make this tax simpler? How can we make some of the options for planning clearer to people? How can we make the administration of estates um, easier and more straightforward? But they have proposed a handful of things that that would be significant changes to just how planning works and, and just how the tax works. For example, there is a proposal to move the gift rules that currently work as a seven-year window. Uh, so you have to survive seven years from the date that you gift. If you don't, you have potential for tapering for some or all of that gift um, across the seven years. Again, it's relatively complex the way it operates. There is a suggestion to change that to just a flat five-year survival rate that would make it quicker in its effect, but would take away some of the potential benefits. There's also a suggestion that some of the ways you can structure your investments to mitigate inheritance tax might be reviewed. So one of the solutions that is increasing in popularity 
is investment in assets that qualify for business relief. And the simplest way to describe these are they are a share like any other, a share in a company like any other, but because of the trade that they operate in and because they are not listed on a main market, then they qualify for what's called business property relief or sometimes referred to as business relief, which means if you hold those shares for two years and at the time of your death, they're 100% exempt from inheritance tax. The reason that is increasingly appealing to investors is it's a way of maintaining access, maintaining control over your assets. It's a portfolio of shares. It's held in your name. You can draw an income from them. You can draw capital from them. You can treat them as you would any other share. They just so happen to have this inheritance tax benefit attached to them. For that reason, we're seeing more and more people drawn to those assets as a a possible mitigant for inheritance tax. One of the ways you can access them is through AIM shares, because although technically you are listed if you're on uh, the AIM market, for the purposes of business relief, you're not considered to be listed on a main market. And therefore, as long as the company or companies you're invested in are carrying out a qualifying trade, and that's essentially anything that's not investment-based financial services, mining, or uh, arms dealing is also ruled out. Um, There's an ethical touch to it as well. But as long as you're carrying out a a standard trade, uh, if I can describe it as such, then that would qualify for business relief. Or at least at the moment, uh, one of the things that the Office for Tax Simplification have suggested is that perhaps that should be reviewed which if that were to change, it would mean you could only invest in unquoted businesses to benefit from business relief. So it's it's worth keeping an eye on. Um, They are just recommendations. They're not uh, actual policy. Uh, We'll see whether or not the the Treasury picks them up and runs with them. But it's it's worth being aware that those discussions are going on. Yeah, that's an interesting one. I mean, obviously, like you say, it's not a concrete uh, thing that's happening, but um, it's a very popular market aim. And we've seen the rise of kind of aim investment portfolios for people who are more sort of tax uh, tax minded mm-hmm. um, be an interesting one to watch and uh, are there any other I guess common sort of IHT misconceptions that you see that people should be aware of for example around I don't know what vehicles you use like ISAs or anything like that yeah th- th- there are several really and uh, I- I'll apologise in advance because I might, <laughs> I might end up giving you um, something of a laundry list here but I, th- I think the first thing to to really emphasize is just how significant a tax IHT is and the reason I say that is even though I think everyone is aware it's a 40% tax and it's quite substantial kind of just following that through to its logical conclusion can really bring home just how important it is to consider this in your investment planning and the first thing I would point to is the 40% and just what that represents. And and what I'm driving at here really is as someone who works for an investment group, an investment manager, I'm very conscious of the delicacy over charges, annual charges, initial charges. And I have had conversations with clients and advisors over 20 bips here or or Mm. 50 bips there and clients who question whether or not there is value paying their advisor 50 to 100 bips per annum uh, for, for the management of their portfolio when it comes to inheritance tax we're talking about a 4000 basis point charge on your investment and so while that we might have these debates over 
50 bips per annum or 20 bips per annum or whatever else it might be, we are in danger of ignoring 4,000 bips that will come off the value of your assets <laughs> um, where they're subject to inheritance tax. So that that's significant. I think the, the other thing that is significant is just thinking about after allowances, what that means for your beneficiaries and for anyone who has multiple beneficiaries. So let's say two, just for the purpose of this example, it means that after allowances, HMRC will be the primary beneficiary of your estate because HMRC would pick up 40% of your estate, leaving if you were dividing your assets between two beneficiaries equally, 30% for your uh, two, 30% each for your two beneficiaries. So again, just, just the significance of, of it as a charge I think is is really worth flagging and, and emphasizing. In terms of what people can do and, and how they can plan, there really are three kind of primary options. The first is you can plan for how to pay it. Typically that is through some sort of insurance and depending on your age, depending on your health, then what you'll see is a range of charges for that. But as we said earlier, doing that somewhat earlier in your uh, lifetime can be a cost-effective way to, to manage that. It's certainly the case that at a certain age, you might find that insurance is no longer available to you at a certain age and at a certain level of um, health. The second thing that, that people can do is, as I say, that gifting and or trust planning and just being conscious of the different options. There are a range of different um, trusts that are available. And then the final thing is how you organise your, your assets and the degree to which you take advantage of things like business relief. That, that would reduce or even agricultural property relief you can buy forestry etc all of which would reduce your inheritance tax great well um some really interesting points there thanks for um thanks for your time that brings us to the end of today's show but there's plenty going on in this week's investors chronicle do check the magazine or go to investorschronicle.co.uk for our take on the Neil Woodford scandal and its broader consequences, as well as a look at potential bubbles and bargains in the investment trust space. Thanks for listening and have a good weekend. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.